Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Well, it's good to be back with you guys. Uh, we're going to be doing lesson number 10 in our quarterly Mannings for the Master Till He Comes. And the title this week is Giving Back. Let's go ahead and, and begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We thank you for the truth of your kingdom and the way you run your universe. And we thank you for the privilege of being invited to participate with you in not only the healing of our hearts and minds, but sharing this message with others. We pray you empower us and enlighten us and open avenues for this message to go forward, that you will come soon. Be with us as we study today. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We're doing lesson number 10 in the quarterly today, and it's uh, entitled Giving Back. And the memory verse for our lesson is from Revelation 14, 13, and it reads, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are those are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. And I found that an interesting text for giving back until I realized that the lesson is actually focusing this week on the last years of our lives, retirement, preparing for our deaths, estate planning, legacy planning, what we give back when we pass. And so in the second paragraph of the lesson, it reads as follows. As people get older, they almost naturally begin to worry about the future. The most common fears are dying too soon before the family is taken care of, living too long, outliving their assets or savings, catastrophic illness, all my resources could go at one time, and mental or physical disability, who will take care of me? And I will tell you my practice, I see many patients with anxiety, and one of the most common reasons I see anxieties are worries about the future. Uh, the, the, it's a very human thing. The young, younger people worry about whether they'll find a spouse, whether they'll get a job, whether they'll have money to go to college. And the older we get, we worry about many of the things described by the lesson. So the question I have is, what is the difference between worrying about the future and wise planning for the future? Are they the same? Can you all still hear me? <laughs> I guess you can. Okay. Is there a difference between worrying about whether one will be able to support their family in the future and a person who prayerfully plans out what college classes they need to take to obtain a marketable degree, how they will pay for it, uh, and then apply um, purposeful steps toward the achievement of that goal? Is that planning for where you're going to take your life the same thing as worrying about the future? No. no, it's important. I'm, I'm drawing this distinction because sometimes people think that if you don't worry, then you don't plan, you don't anticipate, you don't, um, you don't organize yourself, you don't take steps towards uh, achieving certain outcomes. But, but people who are responsible will make plans, prayerful plans, and they will anticipate um, cause and effect outcomes and uh, make decisions on the tra trajectory where they want their life to go. And, and then they will apply themselves toward that and they can do all that without worry. Is there a difference between a, a person worrying about retirement um, and a person who uh, a person who worries and a person who never seems to worry about anything? They never make and because they never worry, they never make a plan. They never invest themselves in productive living, and they assume that everything will always work out. And then when they find themselves in some distress, they look for family or friends or the state to rescue them and provide for them. Is, is that a better way to approach life, to approach it that way than to worry? No. no. That's the way most of us do. That's the way most of us do. Never, never worry, never plan, never organize. So the point I'm making here is there's a ditch on both sides of a healthy pathway. And on the one side is the person who never considers consequences, never plans reasonable choices or actions, never sets goals, and, and just kind of goes along with the flow of the moment, the impulses of life. And, and if you go that direction, what kind of character do you develop? This is not healthy development of the person to, to go this way. But on the other ditch are the people who are so consumed with worries and fears that they actually can't apply themselves in constructive ways to today because they're always worried about the what-ifs of the future that often never materialize. And so that's a ditch on the other side. So what do you think, uh, Do you, have any of you had any strategies that you felt have worked well for you when you found yourself facing worries of the future? How do you handle those? 
not real life problems today, worries of the future. Pray, pray, uh, pray. Work toward making a means for yourself, but always know that if things don't work out, that God will guide you, no matter what, because you totally trust Him. Yeah. So exercising faith in God. Okay, I like where that's going. So one of the th- I, I deal with my patients on this a lot. And one of the things I, I suggest is that they step back from the future worries and in, refocus on establishing the duties, choices, responsibilities that are legitimately and objectively theirs to carry out in their life today. Ask the question, am I doing today what I believe is right? healthy, reasonable, in harmony with my understanding of God's will for my life today? Uh, Are there any actions I believe that are necessary for me to take today to improve my fulfillment of what I believe are my godly responsibilities that would help me become healthier and and help develop me in ways that I, I believe are my responsibilities to do? If there are areas that you are already convicted on in your life today that you're not fulfilling, then rather than worry about the future, you begin applying yourself to the duties today that you believe are yours to fulfill. Now, the purpose of these questions, if you understand why we would ask questions like this, the purpose of such questions is to refocus our mind away from the future and back on to today, refocusing away from areas where we have no authority and control to the places God has given us authority and control. See, we have no authority or control over the future. God has given us and expects us to exercise authority over self. The last fruit of the Spirit is self-control or self-discipline. And so the future is an unknown. Our responsibilities and choices we make today are often not unknown. And so one of the traps is we can get into is anticipating so many possible futures that it paralyzes us from acting today for fear of making a bad choice in our responsibilities now. So refocusing back prayerfully, evaluating the pros and cons of a decision, and then making a decision, and then reassessing the outcome. So the, the, the Bible says the just Live by faith, the just are the ones who make wise decisions with the knowledge they have and governance of themselves and live by faith, meaning trusting God with the future, how it turns out. And that's not a one-time choice, it's a daily operation. So after you make a choice, then that choice will bring new information to you that you didn't have before you made the choice. And you're assimilating that new information to update your choice. Give you an example. You're at a crossroad. And you have, there's no signs, you have, don't have a compass, you have no map, uh, and there's three, three roads, uh, straight, left or right. You don't know which way to go. So you have some choices. Sit there and do nothing. This is a metaphor for life. And then you don't go anywhere, you're stuck. Or make a choice, go down one of the roads. As you start down one of those roads, down that road you will gain new information. You will see new sites, new signs, new buildings, new um, events along the way, which will inform you that this is the path that leads to where you're going or will inform you that it's not. And if it's not, then you back up and now you have two choices and you go down one of those roads and you'll gain new information. And so most decisions in life, it's better to choose one, go down that road, assimilate the information, uh, decide, yep, that was the path. Here's a classic example. College freshman doesn't know what major to major in. I have no idea. Is it better to wait until you figure out that you're sure that this is the major before you start college, or to start college, pick a major, and as you get some exposure in those classes of study, that will inform you, yeah, I love this, This I resonate with this, or no, that's not for me, and now I'm going to change majors and go down another path. So it is much better in most decisions to, if you don't know, after prayerful reflection, that you choose to gather information and then go down. Yes, hand in the back. Tim, you know, in the Old Testament, there's story after story of people who had a major decision to make and they simply asked God for direction. He gave them a definite answer. 
Yes, and so that's why I've said prayerfully, prayerfully consider these things. So we ask God for wisdom, ask God for insight. And oftentimes, uh, if if we have that connection with the Lord, and, and you know, people can, can pray in ways that are selfish, not really seeking for the Lord, but if we have that connection with the Lord, there's often impressions, insights, the still small voice that Elijah heard, which uh, an idea, an epiphany, and a, a, an insight that you hadn't had before, before the prayer, opens a new possibility for a decision. So I think that's very valuable and necessary, and I recommend it highly that we do pray, and we do pray that God will give us the discernment in the evidences that are circling around us to be able to see um, the the reason for the this decision being better than that decision. So you're exactly right. My question, though, is it seems like God does not relate to us the same way now as, as He did back then. I mean, we don't get those answers like so obvious uh, like they did then. So when you read the Psalms, do you see the psalmist uh, uh, struggling in his conversations with God and uh, and getting immediate and clear answers, or is he wrestling out concerns with God? I see a lot of both happening. I see there are certain times where God gives clear and direct answers and certain times when he's not. And you have to look at the context of what's happening. Uh, if you remember the Old Testament context, is the battle for the coming Messiah. In God, and we're focusing in specifically on the people through whom Messiah is going to come. And we're focusing specifically on, on the war of, of Satan trying to destroy the people whom, through whom Messiah is going to come. We're not, we're not the, the Old Testament story, while we have individual lives, and those individual lives are valuable, it's a bigger story being told. It's not exclusively and only about the individual salvation of every individual person we read about. And so many times God is answering prayers for the benefit of that person, but it's also for the benefit of the larger purpose that's being carried out at that time, keeping open avenue for Messiah. Uh, and we'll read about some of those, I think, in, in class next week, when Jehoshaphat was asking for prayer, the, the prophet came, when, when, Nate, when, when the building of the temple, Nathan came and told David and then had to correct that. And so we see a lot of directions happening through God's prophets, but they're, they're for the purpose of the, of the plan of salvation being carried forward and keeping open avenue for Messiah. I don't see a lot of, I mean, maybe my memory's not perfect. Maybe you have in your mind some, some specific examples, but I don't see a lot of examples of, um, of prayers like, well, should I enroll in the school of the prophets or should I go become a farmer? And God tells them what to go do. Do you see any along those lines? Which is many of the times people are, are asking, well, should I take this major or that major? Should I go to this school or that school? Should I buy this house or that house? Should I get this car or that car? Uh, should I marry this person or that person? Usually, should I go to battle or should I not go to battle? Should I go to battle or not go to battle? And those were all related to what I was just talking about. Those were the issues related to keeping the uh, people of Israel from being destroyed by the enemies that Satan was inflaming constantly to try to destroy them. To, to, and so God was constantly answering their questions along the lines as far as the the, the national security and 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 keeping the the. Uh, avenue that the the human branch the branch of the human family that the messiah was going to come through so i i see the context context somewhat different there but on an individual level god still answers prayers have you not i should say i know in my life i've prayed and i've had some clear convictions and directions and evidences given and doors open and doors closed and i remember multiple occasions in my life where where i had an opportunity and and to to move here or take a job there and and I prayed about it and said, Lord, it looks good from my perspective, but if it's not in your will, uh, have something happen. Close that door down. I don't want to go that direction. Multiple times it's happened in my life. Yeah. Has any others had that experience? Yeah. 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 So, again, I think it's better, uh, but, but many times... It, the Lord wants us to come to some knowledge of discernment. And for many of the decisions in life, God sometimes has specific people he calls for a specific purpose. Like he specifically called Saul of Tarsus to become the Apostle Paul, or he specifically anointed David to become the second king. Uh, he, he, sometimes he calls people specifically to specific offices or roles. 
Most of the people, even in Bible history, he didn't call to become a farmer or a fisherman. He called 12, 12 people to become his apostles. But there were a lot of fishermen in Israel when, when the, the, the apostles were called that were not called to leave their fishing nets, and I doubt God called them to be fishermen. Uh, it was their choice to go down that, that career path and trail. And so most of the paths and careers in life that we take, God wants us to be his representatives in that path because he needs people who live and practice his principles in every walk of life. But it doesn't necessarily call us to the specific field that we choose to go down. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. For the most of us. What about the worry that the lesson referenced about worrying about mental or physical disability? How do we apply what I just said about focusing on our responsibilities today when it comes to mental and physical disabilities? It's up to us to be healthy and do the best for our bodies that we can. Well said. Instead of worrying about the future and whether in the future we will find ourselves disabled, we have a responsibility today to govern ourselves in the care of our spirit temple. So we make reasonable decisions, wise decisions in harmony with the laws of health, spiritual, mental, physical, and otherwise. Uh, Healthy choices in food, exercise, study, Mental stimulation, rest, sleep, relationships, boundaries, fulfillment of one's duties, uh, obligations, and so forth. All of these things have an impact on our, on our health. You, you guys probably know my book, The Aging Brain, Proven Steps to Prevent Dementia and Sharpen Your Mind. I go into great detail on most of these aspects of our human experience showing that most of the experiences of life have a direct impact on either accelerating or slowing the aging process, uh, contributing to health and wellness or contributing to disability, depending on how we apply ourselves. Principles of God are always protective, uh, breaking those principles. And sometimes breaking those principles are not our own fault. Uh, People can uh, be making a purposely healthy choice to drink water and not sodas, but they live in a community that has lead in the water. Okay, And so they're not purposely, they're not knowingly doing something to break the laws of health. But if you drink lead-lined water, you're still going to have a health consequence because of that, even though you're not doing anything wrong. And so sometimes in this world, people who live a healthy lifestyle still develop various diseases of various kinds because of some exposures they don't even know about. So rather than worry about the future, we want to examine our lives and and say, hey, am I doing what's reasonable and what's uh, achievable with the options I have before me to live as healthfully as I can? And and I trust my future health because regardless of how healthfully we live our life, if you could absolutely have every molecule of food that ever entered your body be only nutritionally valuable and never eat a, a, a unhealthy morsel and only drink the purest water in your life and always get eight hours of sleep and always exercise to the perfect amount that your body needs. If you did that your whole life, guess what happens when you 80, 90, 100? Your body still ages and decays. And if Jesus doesn't come, we don't avoid the the ultimate consequence of the first sleep death on this planet. We will have a better life. We will age better. We'll have less disabilities. We'll be more useful. But the point being is we can't avoid the slow decay of of our body simply by healthful living. The purpose of healthful living is to maintain our vitality and abilities to the best degree possible for as long as possible, to be as useful for God as possible. So worrying about our health, what do you think worrying about our health actually does? Makes it worse. Yeah, actually, worrying about our health increases inflammatory cascades in our body and increases both physical and mental health problems. A study of 5,000 individuals found that worriers, the people with chronic negative, pessimistic, or angry, or bitter, or anxious, uh, depressogenic mind patterns, uh, increase inflammatory factors in their body. It's associated with greater risk of dementia as they age, as well as physical health problems and metabolic disease problems. Whereas conscientiousness, 
was the opposite. See, people who are conscientious are not worries. Conscientious person has simply like, if uh, give an example where you might be conscientious, somebody offers you a piece of pork out at a out at a restaurant somewhere, and you conscientiously decide that because of your health principles, no, I don't want to eat that. And so that's a conscientious decision. But how many hours do you spend worrying about whether you're going to eat pork or not? You never worry about it. You don't, you don't stress over it. It doesn't cause you anxiety. You just make a conscientious decision over it. And so conscientiousness is not the same thing as worry. Conscientious people actually have a lower risk of these illnesses, but worriers increase their risk. There are six big keys to maintaining wellness and reducing uh, the loss of vitality as we age. And the six big keys are physical conditioning, mental uh, stimulation or staying mentally active, rest, both physical rest and mental rest. I'm going to go through each of these with you in a moment. Stress management, resolving uh, real-life stressors as they come, Uh, a healthy anti-inflammatory diet, and a healthy spirituality. These are the six big keys. And so, um, any questions before I go? I'm going to. Would you be interested in some data and some and some science behind some of this? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, uh, studies show that older adults who exercise regularly, and that exercise regularly can be a 20 to 30 minute walk, four to five times a week. Okay. So we're not talking. You have to become a marathon runner or an Olympic athlete. We're just talking being active uh, uh, more than just walking from your car to your house and walking from your car to work. So thirty, you know, thirty minute walk four to five times a week. Adults who do that uh, have forty percent less likelihood of experiencing any disability. It reduces that just that reduced your disability by uh, risks by forty percent. Uh, regular exercise causes your body to produce a, a molecule called interleukin-10. This is an, an anti-inflammatory molecule which reduces the inflammatory molecules like inflammatory cytokines and things that come from stress. Exercise improves insulin sensitivity, so you have less risk of metabolic illnesses like obesity and uh, diabetes type 2 and hypercholesterolemia. Exercise turns on all the proteins in your brain that are called neurotrophins that let your brain connect, make new connections and sprout new um, synaptic uh, uh, formations. You can learn better and you can uh, adapt more quickly. You can handle stress better. Uh, Older persons, these are people over age 65 who exercised regularly, again, as little as uh, 20 to 30 minutes of walking five times a week. Uh, saw 2% growth in the memory circuits of their brain, which are called the hippocampus, which made their brains look two years younger than before they started the exercise. So even older brains are still able to have positive changes by uh, by doing this exercise. People, one study showed people who walked as little as 15 minutes a day, a 15 minute walk a day, decreased their risk of Alzheimer's dementia. So the exercise meant uh, physical activity. We were designed to be active beings. Staying physically active is one thing you can do to help um, maintain your vitality and mental and physical health. Mental stimulation, which is uh, not working crossword puzzles. Working crossword puzzles is a form of repetitive or rote learning. You generally don't learn new things in working crossword puzzles. You're just applying yourself to a task you already know how to do. But new learning, which can include, depending on how you do Bible study, uh, some Bible study is only reinforcing the 28 fundamental beliefs and you just repeat back what you've learned since you were a child and it's the same lessons over and over again just repeating. That actually doesn't have significant good benefit. But if your Bible study causes you to expand your understanding, to learn new things, to add, so you have a baseline, but that is adding and you're gaining new insights and you're bringing new connections and new pieces of the puzzle that you never connected to it before are now connecting, this is new learning. Learning. So any type of new learning, learning a new language, learning a musical instrument, uh, a memorization of Bible verses you haven't learned before, that would be new learning. Any type of new learning also reduces your risk of Alzheimer's dementia, turns on neuroprotective genes. When you do this new learning, we actually see epigenetic changes that neurotrophins and other protective anti-inflammatory genes turn on in the brain that helps reduce your risk of dementia. Rest. And there's two types of rest we need. There is physical rest, which is we get with sleep primarily. You can also rest just by you know lounging around, but the kind of rest our brain needs is sleep. Your brain is one to two percent of your body mass. 
But even though it's only 1% to 2% of the mass of your whole body, it uses 20% of your body's energy, which makes it very metabolically active. It's like an engine running and burning fuel all the time. And because it's very active, it's burning a lot of fuel. When you burn fuel, there are waste products. And waste products, if they build up, are toxic. So we have to clean those waste products out to keep the environment of our brain healthy. And it's during sleep at night that the neurons themselves literally contract and expel out of the inside of the neuron into the cerebral spinal fluid the byproducts of metabolism, which are cleared out of our brain when we sleep at night. So if we have a sleep disorder or we are chronically sleep-deprived, then we, uh, over the course of years, build up these uh, byproducts of metabolism, increase oxidative stress on the brain, and accelerate our risk of dementia as we age. Obstructive sleep apnea is a disorder in which people have their airway closed while they're sleeping and, and they're not breathing properly. And if you don't get good oxygenation, I bet you all know your brain doesn't do well without oxygen. And, and what happens is people are waking up through the night because they're kind of suffocating a little bit and they never go through the full deep stages of sleep and so they're in and out of the light stages of sleep all night long and this has a negative impact on on ability to clear out the toxins as well as the restorative elements that our brain needs in our sleep at night. And in fact, a meta-analysis of over 12,000 articles found that these breathing-related sleep disorder, uh, related sleep disorders increase the, the risk of all-cause dementia. And as you restore healthy sleep, um, we can see positive brain changes. So if you've had sleep apnea and you get it treated, the brain responds in a positive way. That's the physical rest. What do you think the mental rest is? Well, there's one that God has given us. It's called the Sabbath rest, that every uh, seven days, God has instructed that we're to come aside and set aside our work. Is Work is a stress. It's a responsibility. It's a burden. But every seven days, we're to set that aside and not sleep for 24 hours, but to rest. Rest from our labors, rest from our stresses, rest from our schoolwork, rest from our housework. It's supposed to be a, a mental decompression and rest in our relationship and respond and, 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 and love for the Lord. It's be a rejuvenate. It's like a vacation in time. I can have the day off without feeling guilty. Okay, I don't have any work I have to do today. Ah, oh, what a relief that is. This is, what the, this is why the Sabbath is to be a delight. If we present the Sabbath, though, as a rule that you have to keep, a whole long list of things you can't do, that you're fearing the whole day that you might slip up and you might do something you're not supposed to do. Like I remember the story that was told to me of, of somebody in the, in the church uh, that goes to church, but they run right out of church, so first out the door and into the parking lot because they don't want to take a chance that somebody in the lobby might say something to them like, hey, did you hear who won the football game Thursday night? Because if they hear somebody say that, that would break the Sabbath because that's not a Sabbath topic that they could hear about on the Sabbath and they would be sinning to be involved in that. And so so you can see that uh, such an approach to Sabbath does not actually reduce one's stress. It keeps you very stressed because you're afraid that something will contaminate you on that day. That is not rejuvenating. But if you keep it as a delight, as a vacation, as a time off to unwind, the data shows, and there's many studies that show, that people have uh, less disabilities across the board, and they end up living longer. In fact, you probably remember the Blue Zone studies that looked at the five areas in the world in which people live to be over 100, and uh, those areas were... Um, Ikaria, Greece, uh, uh, Nicoya, Costa Rica, Okinawa, Japan, and uh, Sardina, Italy, and Loma Linda, California. Now, the first three are all homogenous. People have a very strong gene pool, and they have a very strong culture uh, with a very healthy diet, usually an uh, anti-inflammatory diet. But Loma Linda is heterogeneous, people from all different backgrounds. And you know it's because of the Adventist lifestyle. And on the Blue Zones website, they actually cite as one of the reasons, they try to identify what are the elements that people are doing that contribute to longevity and vitality and slowly aging, and they listed uh, the, the Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath taken by Adventists that allows them to decompress and reduce the stress is identified as a benefit to our physical health. So one of the things we need to do, rest, rest our minds as well as our bodies. 
Now, before we finish this issue of rest, I have a quotation from one of the founders of the Adventist Church, and I want to know for those who were raised in the Adventist education system, if this particular quotation from Ellen White was ever read to you by your teachers or maybe your, your high school or college professors. This is out of Counselors to Parents, Teachers, and Students, page 405. Listen to this. Intemperance in study is a species of intoxication, and those who indulge in it, like the drunkard, wander from safe paths and stumble and fall in the darkness. The Lord would have every student bear in mind that the eye must be kept single to the glory of God. He is not to exhaust and waste his physical and mental powers in seeking to acquire all possible knowledge of the sciences, but is to preserve the freshness and vigor of all his powers to engage in the work which the Lord has appointed him in helping souls to find the path of righteousness. When you were in school, did your professors ever read this to you? No. No, they never read that to me either. Uh, I wonder why they left this one off. In fact, they were often advocating for me to study more, and I wasn't really necessarily wanting to study more. What do you think about this statement? Do you agree with it? you disagree with it? I don't know. Well, there are design laws involved here. Laws of health are always design laws. And, and there are design laws here, and the two are the law of exertion. If you want something to get stronger, you must exercise it, because if you don't use it, you lose it. So the teachers that advocate more study are, actress, uh, are advocating exercise those neural circuits of learning, and you will develop uh, not only good study habits, but you will learn the material. So that's the, the law of exertion. You won't learn the language, you won't learn the material if you don't exercise your abilities to master the material. Okay, But what this author is is uh, emphasizing is the corollary to that. And the corollary to that is the law of restoration. After a finite being, which we are, expend energy on a task, we must rest and recover before we engage in more activity along that same line. Because if we don't get adequate rest and recover, we burn out and we exhaust ourselves. Uh, even professional athletes, pitcher for the Atlanta Braves, pitches a no-hitter. Uh, that pitcher will not pitch again the next night. They will rest so many days before they pitch again because it's well known that you will burn out and destroy your arm and the muscles will be damaged if you don't get proper rest in between. So one of Satan's strategies that this author was warning against, if he cannot get good people to choose evil, then he wants to overtax good people with too many good things to do such that they never rest and they exhaust themselves, burn out, and take themselves off the, the field of play for the Lord, so to speak. And they end up being a burden being cared for by others because they're no longer in a healthy state and they're no longer able to carry out their duties. And so the author recognizes this and is warning uh, and, and advocating for a balanced life to keep our vitality and our vigor up. Does that make sense to everybody? Yes. Next is a healthy diet. Healthy diet. Notice, uh, healthy diet are anti-inflammatory diets. And the, there's been lots of research on this, and there's two dietary patterns that have been consistently demonstrated to be healthy for the body and brain, promote long life, reduce risk of dementia, uh, protect the neural tissue from atrophy as we age. And those two dietary patterns are a whole food vegetarian diet. Notice I said whole food. Um, Plant-based diet with lots of whole foods because you could eat a plant-based diet by eating lollipops and candy all day. Okay, uh, that comes from plant, but that's that's not a whole. That's very, that's a high high oxidizing and inflammatory diet. So just eating uh, a vegetarian diet that is highly processed is not healthy. So a whole food plant based diet is very healthy, but so is a Mediterranean diet, which is high in fish oil, omega three fatty acids, and uh, both of those diets have been shown to increase longevity and reduce all cause mortality, reduce risk of dementia keep the brain healthy. And because of the variableness of the human physiology, gene differences that we have, not everybody can do well in the same diet. And it would be wrong for us to make up a rule of foods that, you, that this person should eat, that person should eat. Um, you know, Ellen White actually wrote that for her, beans were poison. Beans were poison for her. She could not tolerate them. She couldn't eat them. Somebody else might thrive on them. 
And so we need to have a wisdom to, uh, to understand our own physiology and, and choose a dietary pattern that actually is anti-inflammatory and gives us the best health possible. Uh, there is this, uh, after age 70, uh, the brain generally sh- uh, shrinks about 0.5% per year. And there was a study done of over 1,000 women age 70 with no dementia at the beginning of the study. They were tracked for the next eight years. And the women who had the highest amount of o- omega-3 fatty acids from fish oils, the long-chain EPA, DHA, blood levels at the outset of the study had brains that were about two cubic centimeters larger overall than women with the lowest level. And their memory circuits were 2.7% larger if uh, those who had the highest fish oil level. And these omega-3s are involved both in anti-inflammatory protection of the brain, but they also help the brain's lymphatic system uh, remove toxins and waste products from the brain so that we reduce the oxidative stress on the brain as we age. Next is healthy spirituality. And uh, you've heard uh, uh, the studies that I've so d- cited before. Newberg and his group took individuals 65 years of age and older, had to meditate 12 minutes a day on a God of love for 30 days. Before the meditation began, they took MRI scans of the brain, looked at the circuit of the brain where we experienced love and compassion, measured it. They also took baseline measures of heart rate and blood pressure, which are a measure of stress, and did standardized memory testing. At the end of 30 days of meditating 12 minutes a day on a God of love, they could actually see growth in the anterior cingulate cortex, the love circuits of the brain. And their heart rate and blood pressure was measurably lower because when our love circuits are active in our brain, the love circuits calm down the brain's fear circuits. Perfect love casting out fear neurobiologically. And calming the fear circuits met, reduced the adrenaline and, and stress hormones and lowered heart rate and blood pressure. That and re- reduced inflammatory cascades. That All of that worked to improve memory. They had 30% improvement on memory testing. They had another group uh, uh, meditate 12 minutes a day on an angry God and a punishing God and a distant God, and they did not show these benefits. Only God of love was actually healing to us. Meditating on the other gods make you more anxious and more stressful. And so that was very powerful, and, and one of the things that we can do is take time daily to meditate on the God of love. Additionally, studies show that adults who volunteer in their community, this is an act of altruism, It's putting in practice the principle of love that the Bible uh, describes God's kingdom is built upon. And those who volunteer regularly in their community after accounting for variables, baseline variables like education, baseline health, smoking or not smoking status, after accounting for these variables, the volunteers live longer, have less illnesses, less physical disabilities, less mental disabilities, less depression, and less dementia than matched age controls who don't volunteer because volunteering activates again the anterior cingulate cortex calms the amygdala reduces inflammatory cascades also keeps one more active physically engaged in their community now interestingly enough there's a gene its acronym is rest r-e-s-t it stands for repressor element silencing transcript but the rest gene this gene produces a protein that acts like a cell conductor organizes the the other aspects of the cell improves neuronal brain circuitry development improves memory circuits uh turns uh, uh this this gene is turned on with meditation and healthy spiritual activity, it's turned off with chronic worry and stress. Isn't that interesting? So we have a lot of things that we can do. Instead of worrying about the future and worrying about our health, we can simply focus on, hey, am I doing, if I created habits and routines in my life that I don't have to think about? This is just how I live. I eat these types of foods. I have a daily uh, walk. I exercise regularly. I have a bedtime that I go to bed and get up at a certain time so I get 78 hours of sleep each night. I, I look forward to my weekly vacation in time to put away all my burdens of life and rest with the Lord and family and friends. I have routines that keep me healthy. Uh, and then if certain problems arise, I address them specifically. But day in, day out, I don't have to think about working to be healthy because I've established patterns that make life better for me. Now, with all that in mind, uh, the, the, the last paragraph of the lesson says the, the following. When commenting on these fears, Ellen White wrote, all these fears originate with Satan. If they would take the position which God would have them, their last days might be, might, be, might be their best and happiest. 
They should lay aside anxiety and burdens and occupy their time as happily as they can and be ripening up for heaven. Ripening up for heaven. That's nice. Does this statement make sense to you? Do you find it easy to do or hard to do? Easy. It's hard to do. And if it's hard to do, step back and say, why? What is it in my life that makes this hard? What's in the way? And what? Is the, and if you have a fear, then identify the fear. What am I afraid of? And is it a? Uh, it, most people that have fears in my practice are actually not afraid and worry or fearful about the stuff that is theirs to do. I actually have never had a patient come into my office and say, "You know, I'm so fearful that I'm going to walk out of my house naked tomorrow." <laughs> I'm so afraid I'm going to quit brushing my teeth. I'm so afraid that I'm going to... They they really rarely have fears about fulfilling their duties and responsibilities, what they're going to do. What they fear about is the stuff that's actually not theirs to control. I fear what they're going to think about. I fear whether the global uh, climate change. I fear whether I'm going to get infected with some disease. I fear whether people are going to like me or not like me. I fear whether I'm going to lose my job. I fear whether I'll have money at my retirement. In other words, they're fearing about things they have no control over. And that's what most. And so, when you recognize that, you step back and say, "Wait a minute! Is there something that I I have a responsibility that I could influence? For instance, I I have some concerns or fears that when I retire, I won't have any money to live on. Okay, uh, depending on your age, if you're already 85, it might be too late. Okay, but if you're 35, you might say, "Okay, can I make wise decisions to uh, plan for retirement uh, that uh, that will." You know, with all things being equal, God's blessing, I'll have something. But at the end of the day, whether those resources there or not there, it's not up to me. Uh, I will make wise decisions as governance between today, but the future's in God's hands. So in light of the science we just reviewed about meditating 12 minutes a day on a God of love and how that has a benefit on our brain and, and, and positive benefit on our brain, consider this quotation out of The Desire of Ages, page 83. It would be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour each day in contemplation of the life of Christ. We should take it point by point and let the imagination grasp each scene especially the closing ones. And the closing scenes of his life would be the greatest demonstration in universal history of God's character of love. This would be focusing on love. As we thus dwell upon his great sacrifice for us, our confidence in him will be more constant. What is another word for confidence? Faith. Trust. Trust. Faith. Trust. That's exactly right. All synonyms. That's exactly right. So this contemplative hour grows the neural circuits of the anterior cortex. The the, the um, love circuit calms the fear circuit, strengthens our faith, reduces our fears. Our love will be quickened. That's right. She didn't know the neurobiology, but that's what the science actually shows. Our love will be quickened because the love circuits will actually grow. And what does love do to fear? Pass it out. The fear circuit's calm. And we shall be more deeply imbued with his spirit. It would be, if we would be saved at last, we must learn the lesson of penitence and humiliation at the foot of the cross. I just think this is a wonderful description of the what the neuroscience actually shows of something that we can do to have a positive impact on our life experience. Meditate an hour a day on the life of Christ, which is the revelation of God's love for man, which will grow our love circuits, calm our fear circuits, and strengthen our faith. It's wonderfully said. Sunday's lesson asks us to read Luke 12, 16 to 21, which reads, And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, drink, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? 
This is how it will be for anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich towards toward God. What is the lesson from this parable? He should have shared his food with people who needed it. He should have shared with it. Is this parable saying that we should not have savings accounts or retirement plans? No. 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 Are you sure? He was putting up his stuff so he could retire. <laughs> Wasn't he doing that? I'm going to put, store it all up so I can retire and live off my, my, my increase. But his mental focus was on himself, yeah, and, him and not trusting God. Ah, so it wasn't about having a retirement plan. It was about, as exactly say, rich, uh, storing up for his things for himself, but not rich toward God. This was the big key. You're exactly right. So it's not suggesting we are not to use resources for our own health and well-being, which includes proper times for vacation and decompression and getting away. It's talking about not living exclusively for self and neglecting our duties and responsibilities for God. Fourth paragraph. There's a general picture given in the Bible is that a person works and remains productive as long as he or she is able. In fact, it is interesting to note that the authors of the great prophetic books of Daniel and Revelation were, by, uh, were many believe, both in their 80s when they completed their work. This was at a time when the average death was around 50. Ellen White published some of her best-known and beloved books, such as The Desire of Ages, after, uh, after age 70. Age, then, as long as we are healthy, should not mean that we stop being productive and to, that, and to whatever extent possible doing some good. This is an extremely valuable and well-said paragraph. I want to emphasize this enough. One of the things that contributes to loss of vitality, accelerates aging, and an early death is the belief that retirement happens at 65. <laughs> Truly, the belief that at 65, productivity is over, it's time to wind down, time to put your feet up, time to become less active, time to be less productive, time to watch TV and, do, and, 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 and hit the golf course and do very little meaningful in life, that accelerates the decline. Those who remain active and useful... Their vitality, retain their vitality and wellness longer. It's the law of exertion. Again, if you want something to stay strong, you have to exercise it. There's an interesting study. It's an old study now, but it's, it's an interesting study. It was done back in 1979 where they took men who were 75 years of age in 1979 and put them in a one-week retreat. And in that retreat they, were, they went to, there was nothing in the facility they were in that was dated later than 1959. So all of the furniture, the radio, the TV, the magazines, the, the, uh, everything was from 1959 or earlier. There was nothing since 1959. They, uh, they were to pretend for the week that they were back in 1959, they were given IDs that they wore around their neck all day, every day, uh, with a picture of themselves at age 55, which would have been 1959. They were 50, 55 then. They're 75 now. These, these individuals, these men, were tested before they went into this one-week retreat and tested again on these measures, physical strength, body posture, perception, vision, Cognition and memory were all objectively measured and tested at the beginning and one week later. Just one week, one week later. What do you think happened at the end of the study? One week. Everything improved. In every measure, they improved. Greater flexibility, better body posture, improved hand strength, eyesight improved by 10%. Memory improved by 10%, all in one week. They More than half had improved IQ scores. They did IQ testing before and after. Their IQs went up in one week. They And now what's even more interesting is they took pictures of them before 
and they took a picture of them one week later, and they showed those pictures to people who didn't know them and asked these people to rate in which picture is the person older. And the people appeared younger in the picture that was taken a week later than they did before they went in. So they actually physically look younger as well. I just find it. So the point of the study, obviously, it didn't change physiologically their age. They were actually a week older, but their mindset had an impact on neural pathways, stress cascades, inflammatory cascades, epigenetic changes were happening, uh, attitudes were changing, and our mindset has a big impact on our physical well-being. Now, do you remember how old Moses was when God called him at the burning bush to start his earthly ministry? 80 years old. He was 40 when he murdered the overseer and he fled to Midian. He spent 40 years as a shepherd. And when he's 80, now he's ready to start his ministry. And he led the children of Israel, as you know, for the next 40 years, he had a 40-year ministry. So I tell people, and I think Moses is a great example, if you're 60, if you're 70, if you're even 80 and you think, oh, it's too late for me, you might be just right now. It's time for you to start your ministry. <laughs> a couple of years. <laughs> Second paragraph in Monday's lesson reads, not only does life go by quickly, but when you die, you take nothing with you, at least of the material goods uh, that you have accumulated. Character, that's another story. For when he dies, he shall carry nothing away, Psalms forty-nine seventeen which means that he or she leaves it behind for someone else to get. Who will get it, of course, depends upon what plans are made beforehand. And the lesson focuses on this day's lesson on estate planning. Do you have a will? Uh, have you decided beforehand where you want your assets to go when you fall asleep in the Lord? And this doesn't uh, mean only money. It doesn't mean only money or property as far as like uh, um, real estate property, it can be other resources. It could even be books. When I was in my residency, I was attending a church in Augusta, Georgia, and I had a weekly Sabbath school class that I was teaching there. And there was a beautiful elderly lady who came to my class, loved the Lord, very deeply biblically wise. And uh, she just loved my class, and we had a great uh, time together. A few years later, I graduated my residency. I was transferred by the Army to another military base. And while I was away, uh, she, she passed away. And in her will, she left me uh, the comp her, her Bound Conflict of the Ages series, Black Bound Editions of the five books, and, uh, and I, I, I received those. They were left to me, and I, I ended up cherishing them, reading them. If They're still in my library today, and they have been marked in and underlined in, and I just have been so blessed by those, and I'm thankful that those were left to me. So as you consider your estate planning, don't just think about money. Think about people. Is there anybody specifically you, you think that could be blessed by something that you possess and you'd like to leave to them? Consider uh, key family members or friends uh, in your life uh, sharing Maybe a letter, leaving a letter behind or a video behind. Uh, and I tell this particularly to people that I have as patients who may have a terminal illness and they don't have long to live, uh, that they can leave behind letters or videos to be given to maybe to their grandchildren at their high school graduation or their wedding day or things like this. Messages of encouragement or love can be left behind to be delivered at a later time. Uh, these types of things you can think through and anticipate if you're so interested in doing. Leaving behind for family key points of wisdom or life lessons that you've learned along the way that you would like to pass down. Remember Jacob, as he was uh, uh, about to pass, called his sons in and gave each one of them a, a foretelling, so to speak, a blessing or a direction for their life as he saw what was going to be coming. So, And you can also consider ways that you can uh, leave behind assets that could continue to support God's cause along the lines that you've been ministering your whole life to support God's cause. And these are some things that Lesson wants to remind us about. Any questions about that? Wednesday's lesson, uh, 
points to several Bible texts and asks us what principles we take from the texts and how to, and how we deal with money. And the first is uh, 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, and it says the following. This is out of the NIV 80, uh, 84. It says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of a life that is, uh, a life that is truly life. Any thoughts about this passage? Anything your mind go, wait a second. Can you command people not to be arrogant? No. No. Can you command people to be generous? No. 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 Well, can, can a person give millions and millions of dollars to charity and still not be generous. Because is generosity really about how much one gives, or is it an attitude of the heart? Attitude of that. Yeah, that's a very interesting thing. Sometimes we might think it's about how much someone gives, but it's not. It's really about the heart attitude. Most versions use the word, I, I, I I, I looked this text up because it struck me as a little odd, the way it's worded. And most versions actually use the word command, 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 command. But the King James actually in this particular verse uses the word charge. When you hear the word charge somebody, does that sound is the same to you? Does it hit you as the same as a command? Really? Charge is a challenge. I don't know. Charge doesn't mean the same. Char- charge strikes me differently. Charge is like like to give somebody an a opportunity, charge them with a with a with a with an option. Right. Uh, here's what what to lay out before them a wise duty. If you want this, then do that. Is more what I hear to charge, whereas command is a directive. Do it, irrespective. Um, so uh, how I how I rendered it in the in the remedy. This is how I rendered it in the remedy. Instruct those who are wealthy and worldly goods, not to be so, self, so self-absorbed, nor to put their confidence in riches that they can, that, which can so evaporate so quickly, but instead to put their trust in God, who abundantly provides us with everything we need for health and eternal happiness. Instruct, those, instruct them to do what is right because it is right, to be rich in love for others and generously give of themselves for the good of others. This is how they should live to be in harmony with God's design, develop character that will last eternally, and be rich with love and friends in heaven. This is living as God designed life to truly operate. So that's how I rendered it in the paraphrase. Next verse they want us to look at is 2 Corinthians 4.18. It says, so fix our eyes on what is seen. Excuse me. Yeah. So I read that wrong. Sometimes I'm moving ahead. My, my eyes are moving ahead of my mouth, and, I, and so I don't always read it right. Let me read this again. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. Fix our eyes on what is not seen. What does that mean, fix our eyes? On what is not. What do you say to somebody who says, How can I see something I can't see? I'm supposed to fix my eyes on something I can't see. What do you say to somebody like that? They're right. That's the mind. But the Bible is telling me to do something I can't do? Figurative. The eyes are being used as a metaphor. It's not talking about your eyes. It's talking about your mind. Fix your mind, your awareness, your attention on the eternal things that your physical eyes can't see. That's what it's It's not talking about your eyes. The eyes are a metaphor. Yes, Teresa. Can you also, I know you can, I know the answer to this. When it comes to fear, when you see fear or you're dealing with someone who um, just irritates you, I'll just be honest about it. Instead of fixing your eyes upon them, they're the thing that's irritating you or the thing you're afraid of, 
fix your eyes on God's love to see past what you're doing. In principle, you've got a good point that needs to be balanced because we don't want to fix our attention on the aggravations and irritations and mistreatments of others. That's certainly true. We also don't want to be obtuse to those realities. We want to, uh, again, understand who we're dealing with. Or is the person we're dealing with a trustworthy person or an untrustworthy person? Jesus said, don't cast your pearls before swine lest they turn and rend you asunder. He didn't say don't cast your refuse. Your pearls of wisdom, your pearls of love, don't cast them before people who you understand are going to uh, be your enemies. So you see in the life of Jesus himself, when he was called before the Sanhedrin, he did not give them the Sermon on the Mount. He did not share with him them his wisdom. He did not begin to give them his parables because they were bent on attacking him, so he remained silent. And so I think... Um, you don't focus on their malevolence, but you certainly have awareness of their malevolence, and you're making wise judgments and governance of yourself on where you draw the boundaries on your interactions with them and how you approach them. And so I think what you do is you focus on God's grace, you forgive them, and you probably steer clear of such people like that and engage with them as little as possible. So that's a great question. Well, we're out of time for class today. So let's go ahead and close with prayer. We'll take a short break, and we will then do our Q&A time. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the wisdom that you have given us, for the truths. Help us learn to be able to keep our focus on you and our attention on fulfilling our duties and responsibilities that are legitimately ours in real time, to live out your principles in the most reasonable and healthy way we can, and then trust you with the future and how things turn out. Lead us to apply our efforts and energies and decision-making to fulfill your purpose and use our, um, our time, resources, and, and money for the advancement of your kingdom that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.